Improv Thursday, Adrian. We're just gonna go bounce around on a few thing on a bunch of topics on this presidential campaign, which has become crazier and crazier. Yep, yep, it, it really has. I mean, yeah, it's crazy. By the way, I know all of you obviously can't see Doug when you are listening to us and not seeing us, but it's very funny because when he is ready to start the podcast. He kind of get this, gets this smile on his face and then leans in very heavily to the microphone. It's just, it's really funny. It's very amusing. <laughs> I mean that in the nicest way, Doug. And now he's blushing. Thanks, Ella. Mm-hmm. Uh, so there, you know, so the last time we were on, um, we had the, the great Jennifer Palmieri and uh, we were talking a good bit about uh, communications operations. And at that point, Tom Steyer got in and we had some inclination on what some of these campaigns were raising, but now we have all the numbers are in. Um, now we know. Now we know. And not a lot of surprises. Obviously, most of these campaigns had had, le- had already leaked or made public what they were going to raise. But um, I think it's worthwhile to, to take a look at sort of the final count. By the way, by the way, word word from the wise here, if you if a candidate does not release their numbers when a quarter closes within three to four days of that quarter closing, um, that usually means they don't have great numbers. <laughs> right. So if if you're if they're waiting for the great reveal to be the night that those FEC reports are due to be filed, which is always on midnight, fifteen days after the filing deadline. Um, if you if they wait to release those numbers until then, um, it usually means it's not great news. Yeah, and we saw that from some folks that we quite you know look we were expecting probably better numbers. Um, you know, one of the key strengths of Beto O'Rourke coming into this campaign was his ability to fundraise. Mm-hmm. He raised gobs and gobs of cash against Ted Cruz. He had that massive quarter where he raised like eighty think, million dollars overall, right? And he had a thirty million dollars. So it was, you know, that was one of those assets that he brought to this campaign that everyone thought would be a real benefit to him. And um, you know, this this uh, this quarter he raised three point six million dollars, which was. Slightly better than Michael Bennett, slightly better than Jay Inslee, you know, less than a million dollars better than Andrew Yang. Um, You know, I think if you're the O'Rourke campaign and, you know, this is a guy who has just tons of talent, um, you got to I think you got to take a look (laughs) under the hood and figure out what you can do to right this ship, because. That aspect of his campaign was so attractive to Democrats, the mm-hmm. fundraising ability, along with his magnetism and his ability to connect with voters. And um, so I, I, I'm just a little worried about him. Yeah. You know, we talked about this, Doug. Jen O'Malley Dillon is one of the most talented operatives in the Democratic Party. She's running his campaign. So, um, you know, she she had this tweet storm that she uh, sent out after they released the numbers, his numbers right before the filing deadline. And, you know, said, look, we've obviously got some work to do, but we have a path. We've got a strategy that we will be executing over the course of um, the next, you know, seven, eight months. And um, we've got a plan. Just stick with us. So I have to believe that they do actually have a plan. And knowing Jen, they they do. Um, but, but look, I think what we're seeing with Beto is that just because you had a very successful Senate run, even if you nearly lost the Senate race, it's oftentimes very hard to translate that magnetism, that popularity to running for president. We're seeing the same thing with John Hickenlooper, a pretty popular governor in Colorado, somebody who's done a lot of really incredible things economically for the state of Colorado, who's in the gutter. I mean, he's just not getting out of this one to one and a half percent 
uh, national poll range, and he only raised, I think, about $1.5 million. Is that yeah. right? Yeah, one point two. So, you know, it, it's just showing that just because you are um, able to harness a lot of support and attract a lot of attention in your state, and, of course, in Beto's case, running in statewide office, um, running or f- rather federal office, um, taking that to the national level, it doesn't always translate. Yeah, I think that's that's uh, exactly right. I you know I think if you look at some other some other uh, numbers posted by our folks, um, you know obviously Mayor Pete stands out um, twenty four million twenty five million dollars by a guy who represents a state or a city that is um, what a hundred thousand people. But here's what's interesting about yeah. Mayor Pete. So he raised twenty four million, incredible number. I mean, you can't detract from how incredible that is, especially given the fact that he's a, he's a mayor of a medium sized town. But his um, support in California is at three percent in the latest poll, and a lot of the the donations that came into his campaign came from places like New York. You know, big money in New York, big money in. Uh, California and the fact that he's at 3%, it's not translating, right? And he's still not able to build that diverse coalition. Um, He's still working on that. He, um, you know, is doing quite well with, you know, white educated voters. But it's, it's just interesting to me that he was able to raise a lot of money from a state like California. And of course, we know that there are some donors in California who um, you know, Susie Buell Tompkins, for example, who endorsed Kamala Harris, but then said, oh, by the way, I love Mayor Pete. I'm going to do a fundraiser for him. You saw that happen quite a few times in California. And I just found it very interesting and a little surprising that he was still in, you know, low single digits yeah. in that state. Yeah. And, you know, look, California is an incredibly expensive state to run a campaign in multiple media markets that are really expensive. He hasn't gone up on TV there. Uh, I mean, I think if you look at his real clear politics average, uh, you know, this week right now you have Biden, who's at, who's at uh, about 28.4. You've got Sanders at 15. You've got Warren at 14.6. Then Harris at 12.6. And then Buttigieg is under five. He's at 4.8. So that's mm-hmm. a that's a bit of a uh, a bit of a drop for him. I mean, you know, other polls have him a little bit higher, and um, but you know, what I think they're trying to figure out right now is how do they spend this twenty five million dollars so they can do something about these numbers, right? Mm-hmm. He clearly has some uh, innate skills that you just you can't buy. You know, he's an exceptional communicator. I believe he's authentic. He's smart, um, and. Uh, you know, he's connecting with people, but he's not connecting with a broad set of voters, mm-hmm. particularly people of color right now, that he's going to need. Right. And I don't put that just because of the issues he had with the shooting in uh, South in South Bend. You know, I mean, I think this was happening before then. Um, but I saw I saw today that he hired Jess O'Connell. Which is a big, big, big hire. Mm-hmm. Big um, deal. Former CEO of the DNC. She's going to be focusing Lister. on early states um, and early state strategies. So that's yep. a big deal for him. Yep. You know, my my uh, my hunch is, you know, he's going to just start staffing, heavily staffing up in some of these early states where he needed to, where he didn't have much of a staff because he, you know, wasn't, he didn't have a lot of money in the beginning of this. And maybe they weren't prepared for this type of influx of cash. So, but he's got to, you know, he's got to, it seems like it, he's got to translate this this energy, this buzz that we're seeing and the money that we're seeing into some better poll numbers. And um, he'll get his shot at the end of the month with uh, the debate. But, um, 
you know, I agree with you. I mean, I think when you're looking at the, the you know, when you're looking at some of these numbers, he's doing better in Iowa than he is nationally. Um, you know, it's just it's not translating in terms of in terms of voters. But I think you're right. I think the fact that he is, you know, using this money very wisely that he raised to in part um, hire more field staffers and, of course, hire very um, top Democratic Party talent like Jess O'Connell. That is a good sign that he is figuring out how to take this energy and momentum and try to spread it to a large, larger, more diverse, um, you know, set of voters. Our friend uh, Kirk Badella had, uh, I guess he must have been in Nashville um, a couple days ago or mm-hmm. yesterday, and he had a uh, on his. He's always Insta- in Nashville. He is. Always. He is. Um, on his Instagram feed, he had uh, he had Mayor Pete who was in Nashville for, a, it looked like a fundraiser, and for, a, um, they had a couple, he had a couple country music stars there. The room was packed. People love him, and people are very mesmerized by him. You know, they they want to hear from him, they want to see him in person. You know, I told you about that Washington Post event in Washington, D.C., which is a city filled with a lot of skeptical, um, you know, right. sort of, I've seen it all, types of Democratic and Republican strategists, and, and just, you know, political operatives in general, but the room was overflowing with people. Um, You know, folks are just from all corners of America. People want to understand what this guy is all about. They want to meet him. They want to see him in person. So I guess I'm not surprised that he had like a packed house in Nashville. Yeah, it was good to see. I Let's just take a look at a couple other uh, of our candidates uh, running. Uh, Bernie Sanders, he he looks like he he transferred – about seven million from his uh, Senate account. He mm-hmm. got to twenty-five million. You take the seven million out, and he was around eighteen. Um, and uh, you had um, Joe Biden come in at twenty-two million, mm-hmm. which I don't know. I hear people say that wasn't that impressive, but one of the knocks on Biden before this race started was he's not a good fundraiser. Mm-hmm. You know, and there was questions he's about never been a good fundraiser. He's you know we're worried about his ability to raise money. You right, heard that all the time. Right, and how is he going to do with small donors? Right, and he had a look. I mean, he didn't outraise Mayor Pete, but he outraised Bernie. No, twenty two million is is very strong, especially in this crowded primary. And you know, I think the thing with Biden is a lot of that money did come from large dollar donors, from people who are able to give. Um, max out donations or donations in the amounts of, you know, 1000 Um, You know, the, the question, of course, comes down for Biden is can he raise that grassroots money that he that candidates, I think, need to raise in order to really be viable. But look, he's certainly going to make the third debate stage um, for the Democratic um, National Committee, which is in September. Right. The donor threshold has increased from 65000 for the first two debates to 130000 for the third debate. Joe Biden's already met that. So he is getting grassroots donations. And he's got a smart team that's figuring out how to, you know, create a strategy that allows him to harness those grassroots donations as well. Yeah. And I think maybe the biggest surprise for me, even more of a surprise than Mayor Pete, was Senator Warren. Um, Mm. 19.2 million. Incredible. It is so difficult to explain how hard it, it is for somebody to raise the kind of money she raised, 19 million without having a large donor strategy. That is just incredible what she was able to pull off in, in Q2. She, um, and Axios has a great breakdown of the uh, uh, Democrats' Q2 fundraising. Um, but 
she raised of her total, she raised uh, 66% from folks who gave under $200. Uh, and that was the highest percentage of uh, anyone running right now. Uh, Bernie was at um, 48% of folks under $200. Mayor Pete was at 43 Biden was at 37 So what that tells me is that these folks could be around for a while. They didn't give, they didn't give, I mean, they have still a lot more to give. And so when you're, if you're thinking this is going to be a long campaign, the fact that, you know, she's going to be able to go back to these folks every week, every mm-hmm. month, get 50 bucks here, 100 bucks here, 150 bucks here. That's going to be really. That's going to be very helpful to Elizabeth Warren. It is. It is. And you know, Doug, we talked a lot about on this podcast about how we weren't sure that she was going to be able to successfully pull off a good fundraising quarter, given the fact that she's limited her ability to raise you no know, donations from bundlers and from large dollar donors. She's not doing these you know standard fundraisers like everybody else has done. But she proved us wrong. Yeah, um, we were skeptical, and she proved a lot of folks wrong. She really. She, she did very well, and I have every reason to believe as long as she is doing um, a successful job in this campaign and, you know, staying on track and putting out policies and, you know, not getting into the weeds of, of um, you know, this and that, if she's able to keep her lead in the polls like she is, I believe that she will be able to consistently raise even more than $19 million per quarter, even with the packed race, because she's able to go back to these donors who gave, as you said, Doug, 15, 20 bucks and say, hey, guys, can you give me another 15? Can you, get, can you give me 20? Can you give me 50 bucks? And these guys can go up to, for the primary, $2,700. Mm-hmm. And for the general, $2,700. So there's a lot of room there for her to grow her fundraising from these individual donors. Yeah, it was it was very impressive. And she was criticized at the end of her the first quarter. You and I pointed this out Um uh, just in terms of her burn rate, but you know what? It looks like she invested in an infrastructure. Yeah, her burn rate was because she was hiring staff right. in Iowa, right? And, and that actually paid off. I mean, it's a very risky strategy, but it was one that worked for her. Yep, that's right. She was ha- hiring staff, but she also may have been. I, I'd love to, you know, at some point we'll have to get someone from her campaign on here. But uh, mm-hmm. you know, I think she must have also been. At, um, Politico does a good breakdown of who's spending what on Facebook, and I, I, I'm gonna uh, I want to take a look at sort of the amount of money that she has spent on uh, some early Facebook digital advertising to acquire mm-hmm. new donors through list acquisitions, things like that. And um, so it'll be, you know, I I think that they probably saw they obviously knew that this big money from Wall Street and from other places wasn't going to be there, and they needed to be creative. Mm-hmm. And one thing I think, if you're an Elizabeth Warren supporter, you got to like the fact that she is running a very unconventional campaign right now. Yeah. Um, and um, she is in striking distance of Bernie Sanders and in quite in some polling, you know, right now that she is, if you look at the real clear politics average for New Hampshire, a state that Bernie Sanders won with 60 percent in uh, 2016, she's leading Bernie Sanders in the real clear politics average in New Hampshire. That's a big deal. Yeah, it's a big deal. And I think the latest, um, I think it was the uh, St. Is it the St. Aslam's poll? Yeah, St. Anselm's. Thank you. Um, poll in New Hampshire has Bernie Sanders at 10%. Um, that is, 
Correct. Yes. 21 for Biden. Warren's at 17. Sanders is at 10. And Harris is actually, in fact, I, I, don't, I don't know how I don't know how much to believe this poll, but what you would Sanders is in fifth place right now in that according to St. Anselm's. So, um, you know, I think that he is look, I think we can we can we can say we can question what's going on with Bernie's campaign or we can look at how well Elizabeth Warren has done turning that momentum that she's generated both before the debate or debate performance um, into actual um, movement in these polls, which mm-hmm. is something that we talked about this earlier. Mayor Pete hasn't been able to do. Right. And so a lot of credit goes to Elizabeth Warren's team. You know, they dug themselves out of a hole that was, you know, that was yep. um, that they were in at the beginning of this race. And they have just grinded this thing out. And yes, it's early. It's July. But you got to really like her work ethic and her team's work ethic and how gritty and tough they are. Yeah, I agree. So, Doug, I feel like this is a good pivot to the debates. Oh, yes. By the way, since we're talking about polls and topics. So tonight, uh, CNN at 8 o'clock is going to be announcing who makes – who's going to be on which debate stage live. It's going to be a live drawing, I think, right? It's like the NBA lottery. It is the NBA lottery. So what they're doing is they're now tiering these candidates into three tiers. I think the first tier um, are just the top four candidates. I think they determine that by polling – and that is, um, according to their <clears throat> their ca- calculation, Joe Biden, Elizabeth Warren, Bernie Sanders, and Kamala Harris. Yes, that's right. It is Mayor Pete's in the second tier. Yeah, they have. So you, you're you're right. So the first they've got three. Th- yeah, three draws. Um, the first draw is um, some of the lower tier candidates: Bennett, Bullock. De Blasio, John Delaney, Tulsi Gabbard, Gillibrand, Hickenlooper, Ensley, Ryan, Williamson. Uh, those That's the first draw. So those are the people who draw. By first. the way, I think it's really nice that they're calling those candidates tier one candidates. Yeah. It's nice. It's nice. <laughs> Second draw is uh, Cory Booker, uh, Mayor Pete, Julian Castro, Klobuchar, Beto O'Rourke, Yang. And the third draw is what you laid, what you just said. Biden, Hot Harris, Sanders, and Elizabeth Warren. So what this does is it guarantees that you're going to have two of the top four on each separate stage, on each night. Yep. And then, of course, you know, everything else is going to be split. So it just creates a more, I think, even situation. You know, that it, it, there was a little bit of criticism in the last debate, or the first debate, rather, where um, the first night seemed a little light on top-tier candidates. And a lot of that had to do with the fact that the DNC – um, was using polling that went all the way back from, I think, since January, essentially, mm-hmm. to qualify. You just had to have three national polls or um, qualified state poll, early state polls that showed you at 1% or above. So by the time, you know, June rolled around, um, Beto O'Rourke was not polling <laughs> at the same as he was when he was getting the race. So he, he was still, it just, it just felt a little unbalanced. Right. And this guarantees, because the polling for the second debate started right after the first debate, which means some of those really outstanding polls for Kamala Harris, for um, Elizabeth Warren, for Julian Castro, um, because they had such strong, Cory Booker, such strong debate performances. Those polls came out right after the first debate. So it allowed you to really have some serious momentum 
going to the second debate with those polls. So there was basically like a two-week qualifying period, too, for this debate when it comes to polling for the mm-hmm. second debate. And, um, and we should talk about who's not going to be uh, in the debate. Um, Eric Swalwell is obviously out. He uh, Yes. He, he, uh, he rang the bell. And, um, uh, you know, smart for him, though, to, yep. to do it when he did. And I thought he ran a really good campaign. I don't think he, it hurt him at all. In fact, I think to an extent it elevated him. And, you know, he really was the only candidate that made uh, gun safety, the issue of guns, like front and center. He wore that, you know, the orange ribbon, every town's orange ribbon um, during the during the first debate. So, you know, I think somebody else could sort of pick up that mantle and run with it and be – um, you, you know, use that issue to not only gain more votes, but it's also something that a lot of, especially suburban women, care about who are who tend to be swing voters. But I thought he ran a great campaign, and Eric is a friend of, I think, both of ours. So, Eric, maybe you'll come join us on the podcast someday. Yeah, I mean, look, running for president, you and I have done a number of presidential campaigns as staffers. As the candidate, it is the one of the hardest things to put yourself through and put your family through. So for all of these folks... Um, who are running, um, even when we're somewhat critical of them, and we try not to be that critical, but when we are, it's obviously it's out of love. But it's also there's a deep respect that we have for all of these folks who are running because we know what it we know exactly what they're putting themselves through. Mm-hmm. Um, but Tom Steyer is not going to be on the debate stage. He just got uh, got into the race. Um, and I don't think he was really trying to qualify for this debate. Uh, yeah, maybe. I mean. Uh, you know, I mean, I do know he's going up on TV now. Um, so yeah, maybe he's I mean, trying to get, get in, into if, the. If you get in a week before the debate qualifying period ends. Oh, he knew he probably was. You're wasn't not going to hit that 65K grassroots donation. Sure. You're probably yeah. not going to hit the polling. Yeah, no, I mean, he 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 knew that he probably wasn't going to get in. But I do. But it, he is running ads now to um, help him get into the debates in the fall. Uh, Sestak uh, is not in. That's I know that people are shocked by that. And then uh, Seth Moulton. Um, so yeah, um, Seth. Seth didn't make it to this one either. No, no. So, uh, but it should be fun. I, I, I'm glad that they, you know, if they, if they, if they couldn't do the drawing here on our show, uh, you know, CNN prime time. <laughs> that's good. You're um, funny. So uh, we talked about money. We talked about the debates. Let's talk a little bit about. Uh, Trump. Now, you and I talk enough about him in other settings. We don't we don't typically waste our time on him for this podcast. But I we were both uh, thought it would we both thought it was important to sort of talk about him in the context of uh, his ability to sometimes block the sun and um, and 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 sort of detract in some ways from what's going on on the presidential campaign. So we wanted to just bri- briefly kind of hit on, and this week was a great example of that, right? Mm-hmm. Um, you had his, his, his comments um, about um, the squad telling them for uh, women of color, basically telling them to go back to the, where they came from. That became a huge story. Uh, then you had his, uh, there was an event uh, that he did um in North Carolina, where the crowd was chanting, uh, go back home or send them home. Uh, and, you know, send it, them back, send them back. 
And, you know, you basically, it, it, it has totally drowned out. We were talking about this before. If you were to ask me what was, what happened on the campaign trail with these, pre, with these, with our presidential candidates the last two or three days, I have no idea what was going on. I mean, I, you read the new, but there's absolutely no coverage right now Correct. of the presidential. And this is a problem. So I've got a couple things on this, Doug. Yeah. You know, he started attacking the squad, if you will, really focusing on Elon Omar and AOC last weekend when the ice raids, his, you know, big built up ice raids that he kept talking about when they failed, when they didn't do anything, when they actually weren't executed. Um, or at least if they did, there was no newsworthy information in terms of them, you know, scooping up um, illegal immigrants and quote unquote, you know, sending them back to the border. So he started his attack then. We all started talking about it on cable news um, you know, in in the media, the media started covering it. It was basically wall to wall coverage, and then he successfully was was able to allow this to drive the news. When you know we're not really talking about, we're not even talking about Mueller testifying that much. I mean, mm-hmm. I think that test that that coverage will start next week, but he does this to deflect from the real problems that he's facing every day. Right. That he's not, you know, that he's not accomplishing really anything he set out to accomplish as president. He's also doing this because he is doubling down on his base. He is saying, I'm going to win re-election if I'm lucky enough to get re-elected. Donald Trump's strategy, he is saying his strategy is to double down on the base, which is around 33 to 35% of the electorate. They're with him no matter what. Reminding him of what you're going to get if he's not president, doubling down on them, and doing that in a very racist, divisive way misogynistic, I mean, xenophobic, throw throw all those words out there. And then at the same time, he is working to suppress voters in the Democratic Party. He wants to make sure that our voters don't turn out. And by the way, by the looks at it, I think we have to assume that Russia, China, any sort of adversarial government who wants to see Donald Trump reelected because it benefits them as a superpower, it allows them to- North Korea. You know, North Korea- um, they want him to be to be reelected. So since you know he's basically done nothing to prohibit adversarial governments from impacting our election cycle again, our electoral process, um, they're going to be the ones who are on Facebook, on on Twitter, um, putting out these you know disinformation memes that uh, try in, in an effort to try to s- not only suppress votes but sow discord, which mm-hmm. ultimately. Um, might keep people back from the ballot boxes. So that's what he's doing here. And you know what? It works. We saw this work in 2016. I'm not saying it works in terms of getting him for sure reelected, but a lot of folks in the media and people like me, I'm just as guilty. I fall. We all fall prey to this because you can't believe that the sitting president of the United States is saying these racist, sexist, horrific things about four women who serve in Congress, all of whom are U.S. citizens, um, you can't believe those words are actually coming from the White House. And so you're just so aghast by it. You can't help from talking about it, from covering it, from tweeting about it, from you know, letting it drive your, your news segments. But this is exactly what he wants, and it's working. Yep. Yeah, he wants, and, and you know, part of it is, is just throwing, you know, he's trying to throw gasoline on the fire of his base. Um, and I think he wants he actually i think he and his team want to be called racist yeah. because i think that they want that to be used as a way to motivate their supporters so that their supporters get angry that the liberal media and the left and everyone else is calling them racist so it's a way to create you know it 
to me, it's a way to sort of um, that he's trying to unify uh, in many ways the you know his his both the Republican Party and then Trump's party. Um, and you're right. I mean, look, the ice raids. There was a lot of talk about them. They didn't happen. We don't have a wall, and even if they're building a couple cinder blocks around the southern border, mm-hmm. Mexico ain't paying for it. No, um, he didn't repeal the the Obama. He didn't appeal Obamacare. His tax cut has been terrible, uh, terrible, and has been deeply unpopular. So he's got to find every sort of magic trick he can he can he can use to keep his base distracted off of. Those things, yep. and on things that really actually have nothing to do with any of these people's daily lives, but they he mesmerizes them, and I think you're absolutely right. He is using this as both a distraction tool and a base motivator to generate a lot of heat behind his base because he knows that, look, that is what is keeping him afloat right now. Um the only reason why people think he has a chance at re-election is they look at his support with the Republican Party. 90% approval. Right. 90% support. Right. Now, of course, if you looked at the larger, if you look at the fact that he has an approval rating at the, you know, at best, it's been 46, 47%. At its lowest, it's been below 40. Um, with the economy that, that it, with the economy we have that Trump did not create, he inherited mm-hmm. Um, you would think he'd be over 50, um, but he hasn't been able to develop uh, a coherent, aspirational, future-focused message. And um, we, I've said before, I think the Democrats uh, need to, you know, we need to sort of hone in on a message ourselves. I like what, Eliz- you know, I think Elizabeth Warren has the sharpest message out there. Some of our other candidates need to, you know, are, are still sorting that out. But if you look at the Republicans, I mean, what is their... What is their positive aspirational message? They Seriously, don't have, I mean, they 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 don't have one, which they is unbelievable. It's, it's he's the incumbent. Yeah, but you know, there he's the incumbent president, and his party they haven't been able to figure out what they are going to use as a hopeful message, mm-hmm. and that to me is. You know, no, that's, they're, they're using fear and they're hoping that it works. You know, something to our listeners out here, you know, when you're running, when you're working on a presidential campaign, running a presidential campaign, um, especially when you're, you know, focusing on get out the vote strategies as part of that campaign, there's something that we call the terminology is what is your base vote strategy? Like, what are you doing to make sure that those loyal people who love you, who support you, who you know, have donated, who show up at your rallies, who, you know, have, have been with you the entire time, who say, you know, talk to focus groups and pollsters and say, yes, I'm with this candidate, I'm with this person. Um, what is your strategy to make sure that they actually turn out and vote or that they, they turn out in caucus? Um, and usually that strategy involves, you know, throwing some some issues at them that they get excited about, you know, what motivates them? Is it health care? Is it education? Is it Um, you know, raising, you know, raising the wages from, you know, raising the minimum wage to $15 an hour, like, what is it? So you focus on that, and you implement a strategy that talks to those voters, but it usually is focused on issues. Donald Trump's base vote strategy is to motivate these people with fear, with divisive tactics to try to say, you know, if a Democrat is elected, you're going to have a socialist government, you know, your country is going to be overtaken by, 
you know, by Muslims or, you know, by, you know, by an, a presidency that looks like the squad, by the AOCs of this world. I mean, he is using fear and not just fear in terms of, oh, the economy is going to go south under a Democrat, which, by the way, it's not. Um, but he's not just and saying that. It never has, actually. And it never has. Hmm, how how, how interesting, interesting is that? Um, but he's using this fear, this you know, divisive strategy to invoke fear and to really try to motivate those, um, you know, frankly, those white, uneducated voters out there who make up essentially the, the majority of his base. Well, look, I think um, I think some people may say it's working. I don't think uh, it is. Uh, it's still a little bit early to tell. But um, it has been some week, and um, we've got the debates at the end of Next week, right? Or yeah, no, no, July two weeks. July 30th and 31st. July 30th. And are you going to be in uh, lovely Detroit? I will be in Detroit. Right. I will. All right, mm-hmm. all right. Our friend Jamal Simmons, who's been on the show, is from Detroit. Oh, that's right. Yeah, I wonder if he'll yes. be there. Jennifer Granholm, the lovely, wonderful former governor, is also from Detroit. She'll be there. She'll be there? Mm-hmm. All right. Elrod, anything, any parting words, anything you want to leave for our uh, fantastic uh, listeners? No, I just think that everybody should keep in mind that um, that this is going to be a very difficult election. But honestly, the numbers are on our side. Yeah, they are. Ab- no, no matter, by the way, who we nominate is our is our nominee. It could be Bernie Sanders. It could be Elizabeth Warren. It could be Joe Biden. It could be Kamala Harris. So when all of you are thinking about who you want to support, who you want to back, keep in mind that you should go with the person who gets you the most excited, who makes you 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 know, the most motivated who um, really speaks to you because any of these candidates running for president on the Democratic side can beat Donald Trump. Yeah. And chances are that the candidate you back won't win. Uh, Sorry to be the (laughs) downer here. But if that is the case, remember, you know, we all got to rally behind whoever the nominee is. Mm -hmm. This is just way too important. So, I mean, Doug, do you think Marianne Williamson could beat Donald Trump? (laughs) Am I putting you on the spot? You're putting me on the spot. Um, we'll, we'll table that for we'll, another we'll ha- day. We'll come back. We'll see how she does after the next debate. Yeah. Um, well, I'm Doug Thornell. And for my partner in crime, the fantastic Adrian Elrod, this has been The Electables. And we'll catch you next time. Thanks, guys. Thanks, guys.